The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. Today, three new women who allege that they were victims of Bill Cosby are here with me to describe what they allege that Mr. Cosby did to them when they were young and extremely vulnerable. It's always personal to me if a woman has been the victim of injustice and has been hurt. Alone with this secret. It's always personal. Hey everyone, this is Represent and I'm Aisha Harris. On today's episode, we've got a couple of guests who may be very familiar to you. To discuss the new Netflix documentary, Seeing All Red, available for streaming now, producer Marta Kaufman, who co-created Friends, and civil rights attorney Gloria Allred recently sat down with us at the Sundance Film Festival, where the movie had its premiere. But before we get into that, you may have seen the New York Times Maureen Dowd piece that dropped last weekend detailing Uma Thurman's allegations of sexual assault against Harvey Weinstein, which Weinstein has denied, as well as revelations about her working relationship with frequent collaborator Quentin Tarantino. Now, while the Weinstein-related accusations were what many of us had been anticipating from Thurman ever since last fall, when she told a reporter, when I'm ready, I'll say what I have to say, it's the complicated and troublesome dynamic between her and the Pulp Fiction director that seems to have garnered more attention in the days since. Her account of a harrowing experience while performing a stunt on the set of Kill Bill had many people revisiting the debate around auteurs who are celebrated for pushing actors to the extreme, both mentally and physically, on set. So this all had me thinking about my personal relationship to Tarantino as a fan of his, who has often wrestled uncomfortably with this film's treatment of women and race, and I figured we could delve into that, what it's like to be a woman of color who loves Tarantino movies, in the wake of the current re-examination of his movies and filmmaking style. So joining me today is my friend and film critic who has Critiqued <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> Candace Fredericks, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Good to be here. It's so <laughs> awesome to, to finally have you in the studio. Yeah, I'm excited. So you're you're also you would consider yourself a fan of Tarantino's work. I, generally. I am. I remain a fan of Tarantino despite yes. so many things. <laughs> despite, in spite, in spite. Yes. <laughs> um. Yeah. I, I I do remain a fan. I'm kind of one of the few people who can uh, separate the artist from the art just mm-hmm. because I just have such a passion for the art. Um, so I don't necessarily look at it in a uh, more in a different way now or in a more problematic way now. Mm-hmm. To go back to uh, what you were referencing earlier was the New York Times piece that Maureen Dodd wrote or profile on um, Uma Thurman. You know, it was... Among the latest of these accusations that we've been hearing about uh, Harvey Weinstein that has really shed light on the what I what I think is just rape culture in particular, Mm -hmm. um, because I don't want to say specifically rape because some of these cases are not rape. But what we do need to have what we need, we do need to approach and we need to face head on is the um, the the prevalence of rape culture in and out of the entertainment industry. In Mm -hmm. this case is no exception. I was I think I was really struck on how sharp of a turn that New York Times piece did. Um, well, it was all over the place. It was really all over the it, place. It was not a very well-written piece. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was really, I was actually very disappointed in it. I was yeah. just like, you know, because um, I felt like there was more... Um, she she probably wanted to say or more she did say about the whole Harvey Weinstein thing and then there was a lot that really rested on this crash which um, even Uma has kind of doubled back on some of her of, of you know what that New York Times piece relayed as well yeah I mean so well since that was the focus of the piece I mm-hmm. think let's let's first start with what she talked about which was the the driving incident on the set of Kill Bill Volume 1 
And, you know, she in, in the piece, she's quoted as talk. She's quoted as saying that Quentin came in my tr- in my trailer and didn't like to hear no like any director. So it's that infamous scene of Beatrix, her character, like driving full speed and you'd like the close up of her and the wind, her hair and everything. And it was basically a stunt. But according to Uma and, and, and according to Quentin, he, he kind of he didn't see the need for a stunt double. And he, he says that Quentin says that it was like a he thought of it as a minor, like just a, a scene. He didn't really even fully think of it as a stunt. And the way they had these two different sides of the way they saw it, which was her saying, I was told by like one of the the like people on the production set who would know about cars like that this car was not safe but Quentin insisted and like was very angry at me when I said I didn't want to do it and Quentin says I didn't hear about this this um mm-hmm. and I might have been you know not happy about it but I, I didn't wasn't yelling at her so already you have like these two very different ways of looking at these things and while it is yes we we talk about like we we this piece by Maureen Dowd ignored the rape culture I do I do wonder if there is sort of obviously Quentin this is not rape in in any way shape or form but it, it but I think the the points it's bringing up are the very valid points about like the way in which women in the industry are treated and I guess one thing I keep wondering is just like uh, we, Every what what he did seemed to be very negligent uh, in terms of dealing with with Uma and mm-hmm. and her driving, and she probably should not have been behind that wheel. Yeah. But at the same time, Quentin has has also done a lot of things to his male stars. So, like, I also wonder how much of that is just him, and and that and the and the bigger question then is just like, why do we let these auteurs go to these lengths, regardless of male female? I don't know how you felt about that. Yeah, um, he, I mean, it def- definitely said this was like over, when was it, 15? Yeah, this is, I mean, ago? Kill Bill came out in what, 2004? Or tw- I think he said, he mentioned 22 years. I'm, I'm, that number seems to be in my head, but that doesn't, that seems very <laughs> long ago. Um, so the movie came out in 2003. Yeah. So this was, and he hasn't, I mean, it was extremely negligent, which he has even admitted to. Is he remorseful? I mean, he he says he uses the word actually that it's his biggest regret. But um, at the end of the day, it was a really terrible mistake. Yeah. Um, and regarding his the way in which he is as a as a director, um, and the way he treats his his cast. I think I think some of it is his style, which doesn't that which is not excusing it. Um, it's just a matter of fact that he also has to come to terms with and also has to address and fix most of his films. I've seen most of his films, and I think that most of them are actually very empowering for women, with the exception which this movie is still kind of it, it just bothers me even more so today is uh, the Hateful Eight. Okay, so before we get to the hateful eight, mm-hmm. I guess we could talk about. I think I feel like there are different categories of the way women fall into these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, we obviously have, you know, Mia Wallace from Pulp Fiction, who uh, think the only real violence uh, inflicted upon her is when she <laughs> overdoses and, like, you know, it's to save her life, um, mm-hmm. which I guess is ironic in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we go to a movie like Kill Bill, mm-hmm. and there are some who have argued, you know, that this movie, it's it's a sort of a rape revenge story, and mm-hmm. all the, like, you see lots of violence against women. Now, granted, you also see plenty of violence against men. Um, but I mean, I, I I guess I would argue that like because it, all these women are, they all seem to be on, I don't know what the word is. Um, they seem to be balanced in terms of like they all, they, none of them are seem to be coming from a very low point with the exception of mm. of the uh, of Beatrix being this, this rape victim. Mm. Now, the question then becomes, when we're using rape as like a way to empower a character, mm-hmm. what is that saying? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a lot of what happens with a lot of movies that mm-hmm. have quote unquote strong female characters, which is a whole nother phrase that I think we can <laughs> maybe uh, try to get <laughs> rid of. With. <laughs> yes. But um, 
but yes, I mean, that that is her whole M.O. is getting back at, at all the people who set her up to be raped and murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you we have these other we have other characters like Jackie Brown. Actually, Jackie Brown comes before mm-hmm. um, Kill Bill, mm-hmm. where I don't it's been maybe a year or two since I saw Jackie Brown. I love that movie. Yeah. Um, but that movie, I think, is, is probably his to my point of view, I think he's his best written female character. Yeah. Because she is, she doesn't necessarily have to use violence to, you know, get what she wants. She's very smart. She's an intellectual person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She is an intellectual, uh, you know, thief. Right. I was also, she's a criminal, <laughs> but yes. But yeah, she's a criminal, but like she's really smart and, yeah. you know, yes. she's awesome, but she can also be sexy because she's Absolutely. played by Pam Greer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I do think that. We we have these empowering characters. You have Shoshana in Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Um, although her character and also um, the other female character lead in that movie, they both get have very violent deaths. And mm-hmm. I and we even though they in some ways are you know also seeking revenge and seeking to end mm-hmm. you know kill Hitler, mm-hmm. they still have very violent deaths. Shoshana is she is killed by Christoph Waltz's character. Right. And uh, Diane Kruger's character is is she's strangled after she like rebuffs a man for his mm-hmm. advances. Mm-hmm. So I mean, but then here's the thing: is that you can also point to all these male characters in his movies that also suffer very terrible fates, in going all the way back to Reservoir Dogs. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's yeah. I, I honestly think that the the playing field is pretty even. But you had a problem with Hateful Eight, and a lot of people in that movie came out uh, had a problem with it. What was your problem with it? You're talking about the Jennifer Jason Lee character. Yeah. Uh, it was <laughs> because there's been such a long recurring theme of most of his movies, particularly the ones that center women, of revenge. And Hateful Eight isn't particularly an exception, but I think because we are introduced to her as a victim, but also someone who seems like she almost enjoys being victimized really was strange to me. It was very uncomfortable. I, um, because it's so early in the movie and not at all, I mean, just not what I was expecting from the movie at all. I guess I didn't really have any expectations, but definitely it wasn't that. Yeah. So essentially, uh, the the premise of the movie is that Samuel L. Jackson's character, who is a Civil War bounty hunter, is you know he his he's tasked with having to bring her back for after um, she's an outlaw she's one of several outlaws that he's caught, um, and so she she's his prisoner essentially and he's trying to get her someplace but then they got stuck in a blizzard and they wind up at this like haberdashery and they wind up there with like several other you know random people who I don't want to I mean it's been out for years but like eventually a lot of violence goes down and she is the she gets a lot of the brunt of a lot of the violence and she does seem to like kind of revel in it her like Mm -hmm. she's 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 not by no means a sympathetic character like she's a racist yeah, she's yeah, uh she yeah, is an outlaw yeah. but she like she gets uh you know punched in the face immediately. several times yeah immediately <laughs> like like, <laughs> like she just says one word and then she gets punched in the face so i was just like oh my gosh right <laughs> you know that there's that kind of violence that i think rubbed a lot of critics the wrong way when it came out and and seemed to like stick out as opposed to his other um films now we haven't talked about death proof which Came out just a few years after. People forget about it. It's not a very good movie. I really like. Really? <laughs> okay. Well, so the, the, I prefer Planet Terror. I know they were like combined together. Yes. I prefer Planet Terror. So Planet Terror was Robert Rodriguez's half of that sort of double feature movie, which mm-hmm. was all, the, both of them together were called Grindhouse. And that movie came out just a few years after Kill Bill. And. Uh, actually kind of in a way is eerie, eerily reminiscent of what that that incident that happened on the Kill Bill set, which is mm-hmm. the whole premise of the movie is that the Kurt Russell character uh, has has outfitted his car to murder women mostly. Um, and it's a it's a it's a death machine. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I mean, that's his whole MO is making audiences uneasy. But what do you like about Death Proof? Um, it, it's also what I like about a lot of his movies. I like the uh the the 
the feeling of a woman in control despite whether or not she was being she she was a victim and most of his movies the women are victims and they are also centered and they also get their revenge and i think that there's um a discomfort whether it's valid or not there is a discomfort that he chooses to mimic society really mm-hmm. there's a lot of women who have been victims of um male abuse and just male uh dominance and he 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 doubles down on that constantly in his movies and i think that that also you know lends itself to the discomfort that people feel um i mean with hateful eight i just didn't think that there was any i didn't really like her but i also didn't want her to be abused in the way in which she was constantly being abused but again i still had this like nagging feeling that she almost kind of liked it at some point it was very strange sado kind of sado masochist yes yeah and so and that was so contrary to every female character that i can recall that he centered in his movies i just don't know why that was what was the incentive Mm -hmm. yeah so you said earlier you know you can separate the art from the artist but i mean one thing i do find I struggle with when it comes to really liking his movies, but also being a black woman <laughs> is like at what at what point does the artist and the art become separate? Because I feel like especially with him, so much of like how he sees the world is 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 filtered through this movie. Um, you know, one thing I found really interesting. So I don't think we can talk about this without getting into a little bit of what he said uh, these these tapes have resurfaced in the last week uh, about Roman Polanski, we will put a link to the entire transcribed interview on on our show page. But I read through it. It's from a Howard Stern interview from around 2003, 2004. So like 15-ish years ago. Um, but he, he's, he is flat out saying like this 13-year-old girl that Roman Polanski had sex with um, was not raped that she he he says she was down with it quote unquote um and says you know she's 13 she's like when when you're talking about rape you're talking about violent crimes like you have to be thrown down blah 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 and to to their credit howard stern and his his um you know his uh, usual cadre of people um <laughs> and, and talking heads were pushed back very firmly against this and quentin just dug his heels in through this entire interview but so when you have something like that and when you take into account Weinstein, the Weinstein allegations and the the fact that Quentin now has at least said with regards to the Weinstein allegations that he like regrets, like he, he feels like he was complicit. He's admitted that he feels complicit mm-hmm. in that um, and, and not having done more when he, he might have been able to, mm-hmm. you know, then... I, I can't help but see some of that in his work and, 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 and maybe in Hateful Eight where, you know, he like Daisy seems to seems, seems to like being being, uh, you know, punched mm-hmm. and, and abused. And, and Quentin saying this thing about this 13 year old kid who like <laughs> clearly <laughs> uh, like. So, Gosh. I mean, I don't know. It's just it's hard to deal with that. And I, and I wonder, like, you know. If 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 I don't I don't believe in completely getting rid of the art. I don't believe that Weinstein. I mean that this is this is the issue, right? Is that like Tarantino's done really great, written really juicy, great roles for women on screen, but then off screen, like he's you know he seems like he's, he's yeah creepy at, at, oh, at totally. least at minimum <laughs> at minimum yes. And Weinstein is the same way where he oh, yeah. he you know a lot of his movies were had very meaty were progressive in mm-hmm. in many ways and even though they were Oscar Beatty they were also progressive mm-hmm. and yet he's accused of all these things these horrible things i don't think that we should be do away with them but then maybe not with Weinstein movies since he wasn't a filmmaker per se. He was a producer. Like, you know, that's different. But as a filmmaker, I do wonder if, like, we need to be looking at these movies even more critically. Now, granted, Tarantino is a filmmaker who, uh, like, I'm I'm all for just, like, 
there's so been so much written about Tarantino at this point. Why don't we like focus on some other under underrated mm-hmm. or under talked about mm-hmm. filmmakers? Like, do we really need more critiques of Tarantino because there are so many? And it's mm-hmm. like, it, I think it contributes to this mythologizing of him as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, should we be even more critical now? Like, do we need to look at Kill Bill? Are you going to look at Kill Bill in a different way, knowing what happened behind the scenes? I know I will. Yeah. Um, seeing Kill Bill now, um, when I've seen it countless times, but I've also seen it prior to this conversation that we're having national, internationally now. Um, it because I've seen it so many times, I don't, I, I can't even. I don't know. It's hard to really kind of explain, but I'm not um, because I, because I've I've seen it before and I'm almost expecting it. It doesn't seem to shock me right now, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm not really looking at it in a different way. Mm. Um, if I was seeing it the first time now, and I've never seen it the first five hundred times I've seen it, I'd probably have a different answer. But I'm so immune to everything that goes on in Kill Bill right now because I've seen it so many times. Mm. Well, Candace, it's been a pleasure trying to dissect this. <laughs> you're you're not going to stop watching Kill Bill or see it differently. I might, but I like having people on who don't always agree with me. Yeah, this has been fun. <laughs> it's been great, and thank you so much. And where can people find you on social media? I am on Twitter mostly, um, so you can find me at Real Talker, and that's spelled R E E L T A L K E R. Awesome. Check her out, folks. Hey, thank you. Hey, it's me. Just popping in here for a quick note to say that while we were recording that conversation about Tarantino, he actually released an apology to Samantha Geimer, the victim of Roman Polanski. In it, he said, I was ignorant and insensitive and above all, incorrect. We'll include a link to the full statement in our show notes. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Up next, over the course of several decades, Gloria Allred has made a name for herself as an outspoken champion of women's and minority rights, cutting a polarizing public persona in the process. Seeing Allred, directed by Roberta Grossman and Sophie Sartain, covers her storied career and triumphs, particularly her work in advocating for many of Bill Cosby's accusers and helping to change the statute of limitation laws for certain sexual assault and child molestation cases in California. I spoke with Gloria and producer Marta Kaufman about Weinstein and the Me Too movement, Gloria's relationship with her daughter, and her fraught relationship with the media. Check it out. It is an absolute pleasure to have Marta Kaufman and Gloria Allred here at Sundance Film Festival. You are here to promote your new documentary. You executive produced it. I actually produced it. I didn't executive produce it. You produced it. it. Yes. And it's all about you, Gloria. And well, it's also all about the women, the movement. The women and the women's movement and individuals stepping up Mm -hmm. and moving from victims to survivors to fighters for change and talking about the injustices in their lives and then taking steps Mm -hmm. to win changes that are going to help other women and women becoming empowered in a way that they've never been empowered before. So it Mm -hmm. was very exciting to be involved with this film. Yeah, that sounds like part of your motivation for doing this. like. How did you get involved with the directors and, and how did this all come together in the first place? Like, Well, was because it they, they approached me. Mm-hmm. And so I had to really think about it for a long time. And and I did after a few years. And, and they persisted, which is what I always suggest that women should do if they really want something. Mm-hmm. And I admired their persistence. And I, as I came to know them, I trusted them. And I felt that this is something that would be important and help to empower women 
not just a film that entertains, and it does do that, see, seeing All Red. I think people, as I sat in the audience and listened to the audience reaction yesterday at Sundance at our first screening, I felt that it was resonating on a number of levels for people. And and then at the end, uh, we were just so honored. We had a, the, the audience gave us a, the film, a standing ovation for more than five minutes, which I understand is extremely unusual yeah. after screening at Sundance. Yeah. And this film that was made by Marta uh, and Roberta and Sophie, all of whom have brought their vision to it and their perspective and their understanding of how a story should be told, that's evolving and changing in real life all the time yeah. with unexpected moments, surprises, twists and turns, because that is my life as a women's <laughs> rights attorney, as it is the life of women, you know, that they're expecting one thing to happen and suddenly they feel maybe there's betrayal, maybe there's breach of trust, maybe there's abuse, maybe there's sexual assault, sexual harassment, all of that. And they were able to capture that in the raw and the many, many uh, adventures that I get involved in and mm -hmm. the quest for justice and the battles for truth and for, you know, for a positive outcome for my clients who were so courageous in many contexts. And they had all this vision before the Cosby case came about, before the Me Too movement before Weinstein, before you know President Trump was elected by the Electoral College, right? Because we we see yeah we see that yeah, and they that, had that yeah. sense that there was something out there mm -hmm. happening. And I know they say, well, it's about my battle, which is true, mm -hmm. and more about me, but it's also about the women. And I know they care deeply about women and democracy and our country and truth. All of those values we share. And they captured it all. Now you say you took it took you a while to get to this point. Now, did you? How involved were you, Marta? When like, how early were you involved? And did you have to try and convince Gloria? Like, how did that all work? Um, Sophie Sartain, who's one of the directors, she um, she's the first one who said we need to do this. Mm -hmm. We need to do this film, and pursued Gloria for a while. Gloria was hesitant. Um, they came to me and my partners said, okay, good night, Robbie Tolman and Hannah Cantor. And um, we then tried another round of convincing Gloria. <laughs> and she said yes. So I got involved long before we started shooting, but after the first two years of Gloria being hesitant. What, why were you, what was, what was your reservation or what was your main reservation? I know you you can be very intensely private, but... Was there anything you were worried about or like what what were your reservations? Yes, Aisha. Well, I am a practicing attorney and I'm very uh, clear about what my ethical duties are to my clients and to keep their communications with me confidential and also to uh, make sure that I don't discuss legal strategy. And I, I thought about, well, do I, I mean, I'm, I want to make sure that my clients are protected. And I wasn't sure if we could do the film while I'm still making sure that right. there's certain restrictions and that we follow those restrictions that I have as an attorney and that I want that I want and always have filed followed for 42 years. So they finally persuaded me that they could do the film and live with those restrictions and honor those restrictions. And so I agreed to do it. Also, I am private about my private life to a large extent. And I really, and I'm also very issue oriented and I'm sure justice, you didn't notice that at oh, all. Yeah. Justice oriented. <laughs> I had no <and> idea. <laughs> justice oriented. Yeah. And I really wanted this film, if it was going to happen, to really have these voices heard of women have that to see them through the battle mm -hmm. because they're the ones who are most important the movie is framed uh in a way around your representation of the cosby accusers the cosby accusers who many of them were not able to actually um bring a case against them because of the statute of, yes. of limitations and it's really interesting to watch it now in this time period because obviously um 
the Me Too movement, at least as we know it now, the Me Too movement has been around for a while, but like, right. as we know it now, uh, it's become a whole other thing. And now we have the Weinstein fallout. Do you think that if do you think that the Cosby thing sort of paved the way for where we are now? If, if you don't mind, let me yeah, just jump. jump in here. Yeah, the courage of those women inspired other women to come forward. Mm-hmm. Once women started telling their stories, it empowered everybody else, and and this tidal wave built up. So yes, I think. It is directly connected to Cosby. I'm very um, sad that it took so many women to come forward before anybody believed that there was a problem. But it was their courage and their bravery that inspired this entire movement. And, I mean, there is something to be said, I think, for the fact that many of those women were not as well-known as the Weinstein accusers have been. Um, They're not as high-profile. And... I'm curious as to like, what are your thoughts on, because you, you tend to take on cases that are very high profile where at least if not the accusers, then the accused is probably high profile. Um, And there are some people who feel as though with the Me Too movement and the Weinstein movement that these, the, there was too much focus on the fact that, or there's too much focus because of the fact that all these women were famous and and all that stuff. Um, Well, I represent numerous uh, accusers of Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. and I don't think that any of them were or are famous. Oh, the ones you represent, the ones that I represent, correct? Yeah, and and I also I don't think um, you know the public isn't hearing about all the cases that Gloria does that aren't right. high profile, right? And let's be honest, the high profile cases bring eyes to the issue. Yeah. So, you know, in many ways, all of those cases that get public attention help the movement. They do. And I mean, in a way, it's a teaching moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, I mean, one of the, one of the biggest criticisms that you often get in which I think is, is pretty well portrayed in, in the documentary is the idea that you just chase after uh, the splashiest stories. You make a big deal out of these things. That Adam, some we don't chase say. out. We don't chase at all. Oh we, no, I don't. I, clients contact us, right? Or yes, uh, there's a moment in the film where mm. um, I can't remember. Is it? I guess it's the the Trump stuff, and it's just a shot of their office and the phones ringing off the hook. Oh right, yes, yes. You know. Glory is not a chaser. Yeah. People, if people want to be represented, people want to be represented not only legally, but publicly, this is the person to go to. Yeah. And they do, they reach out. Mm -hmm. And so many of these cases are pro bono. They're not all high profile. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't even, I think there are countless numbers of pro bono cases, countless. And most of them Mm -hmm. uh, are, are cases where they're typical people who have been the victims of injustice by other people. Mm-hmm. Who, whose names are also not known, but who have wronged them? Yeah, wronged the victims. But what do you think of that perception that people have of you that that's not necessarily the case? Um, the, we see clips of uh, parodies of you on Saturday Night Live, The Simpsons, like, and and they portray you in a way that like, oh, she just wants attention. She does this for attention. Well, you know, it's interesting because they also had on Saturday Night Live a, a, a skit with Justin Bieber where he was shown in a classroom and he felt that he was being sexually harassed by the teacher. Mm. And he said, I'm going to call Gloria Allred, which was kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but in any event, look, this is not about me. This is, I mean, if people are criticizing me, it's either because of a lack of education, understanding of who I am and I, and my own life experience and the reasons I do what I do or because they have some kind of agenda that they think if they can denigrate me or cast aspersions on me that somehow will cause me to stop doing what I'm doing, which Mm -hmm. is advocating for women's rights and the rights of minorities. Uh, Of course, that's not effective with me. So um, all I care about is justice. I have a passion for justice. I do believe that we must speak truth to power 
that we must create a climate of opinion which favorable to change and to winning rights that are now being denied to women, to racial minorities, to those who are uh, a minority because they're lesbian or gay or transgender. And, you know, they wouldn't be casting aspersions if, in fact, we were not making a significant impact Mm-hmm. because they wouldn't feel threatened. And people who are wanting to keep women in a second-class position or minorities, they should feel threatened because we're very committed to change and justice. Mm-hmm. And we will not be deterred because we know it's important because it's hurting women economically, physically, emotionally, um, in so many ways in their life. And that's why we must have justice for them. Marta, and where do you see the conversation going in Hollywood from your perspective? Like, it seems like it's it's a it's been a battle. All right, here we go. I mean, especially recently. So, just let's take the whole Aziz Ansari uh, accusations uh, that were in the news in the last couple of weeks, and it sparked this sort of conversation. I think that was going to happen eventually about the idea of consent and how women feel. Uh, and and do you see do you see the industry sort of moving towards also have it seems like they're ha- the women are having these conversations but I'm not so so sure about the men. In I Hollywood. just read today a comment that Steven Soderbergh made that his concern is men are going to not want to hire women after all of this. My response is let's see about who the women are who are hiring the men. Um. I think the industry has a long way to go. The women have taken their power back. The men are not giving it back. They're denying, they're running away. Movies, and and this is my own personal soapbox, movies like The Disaster Artist are made where the main character who sexually assaults this woman is made sympathetic. We've got a long way to go. You mean that that Tommy, is, Tommy Wiseau? Yeah. The, who, who James Franco plays. The scene, the scene where he's in bed with a woman and he's calling her ugly and he's making her do things she doesn't want to go do. And this character is celebrated and turned into a sympathetic character. We have a long way to go. I also think the industry is not yet caught up in terms of telling women's stories. I, maybe two years ago, was talking about a movie I wanted to do about a woman and I was told... If I don't have Meryl Streep or Sandra Bullock, it's not going to get made. I hear this all the time from people, and it just amazes me that someone like you, who has several hit shows under her belt, is still being told that, like, it's ridiculous. So we have a long way to go. I think this, the conversation will never be shoved under the rug again, um, but the conversation has only begun. Mm-hmm. Is there some sort of law... That could because I feel like so many of the laws are very uh, well. They they don't really protect women or anyone from these types of things that are happening. Uh, is there something that can be done that you think like we could do legally to cover be like have it more in writing? Because right now there's so much that's blurry in, in the in in the ether. But blurry was part of changing law in terms of the statute of limitations. Exactly, that's one of them. That's, that's one, one of them. But yeah. like in terms of like workplace. Like workplace harassment, um, it seems like a lot of businesses and a lot of these corporate companies and entities have, you know, insular things. I guess one of the things, the conversations that's happening right now is like the NDA, like getting rid of NDAs, which I think is, uh, I don't know how you feel about that, but it feels like NDAs is a small step towards um, giving women and people who experience these things more protection. A chance to speak. I disagree. Yeah. Respectfully. Oh, go. Why? Yeah, because I'm all about victims' rights and protecting victims. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that limiting the options that, that victims have and the access to justice is a good thing. And I know that the press would like to know everything and anything. That's their job to know it. It's my job to protect my client and help her to make informed decisions that she thinks they're best for her life and given the wrongs that have been inflicted on her. So, for example, there are many victims who would like to have a confidential settlement. They never 
never want any member of their family to know, their coworkers to know, their community to know. They don't want to be on the internet forever as a, known as, as a victim of rape or sexual assault. And they have a right to make that choice to protect their privacy and, and not to have that out there. And they don't want to have to go through a lengthy civil trial, be cross-examined vigorously by highly paid defense attorneys, sit in a witness stand and be judged by a jury. That's not what they want, okay? And right. I have, they have a right to make a confidential settlement if they think that's best for them. They have a right through a settlement, a confidential settlement, to recover from the wrongdoer compensation for the injuries that they have suffered as a result of the wrong that he has inflicted on them or that she has inflicted on that that victim. And they need the money, some of them, for the therapy bills, right. for their for the medical bills, for the physical harm they suffered, for the lost wages, for whatever that we can prove. And so some people do want it, okay? Mm-hmm. Not everybody wants their life experience on the internet. And so I just want them to have options. And by the way, even with a, a non-disclosure agreement in a settlement, they always can testify in a criminal case if they're subpoenaed. They can always testify in a civil case if they are subpoenaed to do so. So they're not restricted in that way. They can talk to law enforcement. Can you just uh, sort of lay out for those of us who are not uh, as caught up on on the laws, uh, like an NDA, non-disclosure agreement, how is that usually, like how does that usually come into existence? Well, what happens is that often a high-profile figure who is accused of a wrong, civilly or criminally or both, uh, may wish to enter into a settlement uh, which before a lawsuit is filed, sometimes after a lawsuit is filed, but usually before a lawsuit is filed. And uh, they enter into a mediation and where we negotiate a resolution of the case which our client feels is best for her or him. And in the process, if it's a high-profile figure, they almost always will want uh, a non-disclosure agreement. And that, and but the extent, the scope of it is negotiable. Always they want no one to know that they paid compensation to the accuser. Right. And then in addition, maybe they can't even uh, speak about not only this, the settlement amount, but sometimes they can't talk about the facts. Uh, of what the accusations are. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they cannot, and they can never speak about the fact that there was a mediation. Uh, so it really depends uh, on the situation. So again, there are clients who say, oh gosh, I want to get a settlement, but in addition, I want to speak. Right. I want to tell the world. Okay, that's not going to happen generally with a high profile uh defendant or potential defendant, uh, but they can decide they don't want to settle and they just want to file a, a lawsuit and fight it for the next few years and it will be a battle. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they, some don't want to take that risk. Some say, you know, okay, this is an amount that compensates me and it's as much or more than I would get if I went through a long civil lawsuit battle with the risk that I may not win because right. juries sometimes are very unpredictable. And the emotional toll it takes. And we've seen that yeah. many times. In seeing Allred, you see, you know, these persons who allege that they were victims and survivors uh, fighting for justice to help other women. And that's really what is important. What is important. There's no statute of limitations, that arbitrary time period, on speaking out, mm. on having your voice heard. Um, even if there is this arbitrary time limit, statute of limitations on filing a civil lawsuit or maybe even having the case criminally prosecuted. So again, people need to know their rights. One of the things I know 
the the documentary doesn't get too personal and i know you don't like to talk too much about your personal life well, but there is some personal and there's some a little things bit. that nobody knew yes in the film yeah um but one of the things that we see is your relationship with your daughter lisa mm-hmm. um lisa bloom who is mm-hmm. also a well-respected attorney who yes she is has followed in your footsteps in many ways um and i think because and she's of, carved out her own footsteps as i yeah as every mother knows that her daughter will do. And yeah. that's a good thing. They have their own life. And they yeah. get to live it. Yeah. It it could be perhaps because of the timing of the documentary when all this Weinstein stuff was happening. We briefly see you talking about her um, being on retainer uh, for the it was right around the time, well, right when the uh, allegations first dropped in the New York Times and the New Yorker. She stayed on for a little bit uh, before uh, distancing herself from Weinstein. Um, I know you've mentioned it a little bit, but now that you have a little bit more time away from that, and that's a little bit more in the past, like how did how did you feel about that? Did you talk about it at all with her, or do you discuss those types of things with Lisa? No, she has a separate law firm, mm-hmm. and... And she makes her decision as to who she's going to represent. And I make my own decisions as to who I'm going to represent in my own law firm. Mm. And we don't discuss that with each other because that's not something that I don't discuss who who my my clients are going to be with other lawyers outside of my law firm. People don't get to vote on that. Mm -hmm. Um, Did it surprise you, though, or were you? Well, look, I love my daughter. I respect her. And she has every right to make the decisions that she makes. I know she's a strong feminist and cares about women's rights. And she's spoken out about her decision. So I leave that to her. Mm-hmm. And she's a terrific attorney. And I think anybody would be very, very fortunate to have her uh, to represent them. And and as far as the film goes, we made a, a choice, mm-hmm. you know, that the whole story from Lisa's perspective of her mother um, you know, that was important. Gloria's perspective on her daughter is not part of the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, arguably, she, your relationship with her is also like, I feel like it's like a reflective sort of thing in a way. Um, but I can, I guess I could understand that choice not to include it. I mean, I guess there's also the Weinstein thing there. Once you bring that in, there's a whole another documentary to that is correct about that <laughs> that is correct um but so you weren't surprised you were things are fine <laughs> nothing surprises me anymore i have 42 I years of practicing law you know i nothing surprises me yeah yeah yes yeah my final question for both of you uh, on this podcast we we ask all of our guests um this question and I feel like it's especially fit- fitting since she represents people all the time <laughs> and the show's called Re- represent and so I'll ask both of you and you can think about it um what is the last time you saw yourself uh, your you saw something uh, that you saw in yourself you you felt as though you connected with that character or that person in a film or tv show and that you can't say your documentary <laughs> can I? <laughs> you go first. <laughs> and no, you cannot say the documentary that you've worked on or anything you've worked on it has to be something that you are not directly a part of. You know, it's a tricky question in a way because I can't think of a film recently that made me feel like I see myself in that. I think part of that has to do with that women's stories aren't being told. Um, I have to say, and I'm trying to remember that the name of the film right now has escaped me, is with Laura Dern and Treat Williams about a young woman being sexually abused by an older man. And it was, oh God, it was quite a long time ago and I just, Smooth Talk. The name of the film is Smooth Talk. Um, It was based on, I believe, a novella. That film had a profound impact on me because I had a similar experience. Um, And I have to be honest, this is the first time I'm saying that publicly. Um, But that film had a profound impact on me because it was the first time I understood, first time I understood that it can't be her fault and it wasn't my fault. 
So I, I would say that that is the last one that had a profound impact on me that made me feel like I was represented. That's telling in a lot of ways, especially the fact that that movie came out 30-something odd years ago. <sighs> Thank you for, for sharing that. You're welcome. What about you? I, I, I'm speechless, which is unusual. <laughs> but... Uh, I really can't think of any film or TV show except the closest would be um, there was a documentary a number of years ago, many decades ago, Shoulder to Shoulder, which was a BBC documentary about the battle to win the vote for women by the brave suffragists in England, United Kingdom and what they went through, which was the huge sacrifices they made and how they lobbied and they picketed and they marched and they went to jail and they were, because they were arrested for fighting for the women's right to vote, which didn't exist in England at the time, and how they, many of them fasted and were forcibly fed and were harassed and often physically harmed and persevered. They insisted, they persisted, they resisted. And one threw herself in front of a horse and was killed in front of the king's horse. She wanted to make a point that women must be able to be afforded the right to vote. And that they finally won it. So I have fasted. I haven't been arrested, although I've come close and do not wish to be arrested because I can't do what I need to do for my clients behind bars. Um, and But they made sacrifices and just the courage. And these are the kinds of stories that need to be told. As Marta was saying, I mean, not enough stories of women are being told. This one was being told by women about women, about women who were real heroes who helped to, through their sacrifices, to win the rights that we enjoy today and which we would otherwise be denied were it not for their sacrifices. So that inspired me. It was the herstory, the story that I had been denied and never knew about through all of my many years of higher education, lower education, never heard about it. And I thought, wow, this is an important story. And I can identify with the need to battle for justice and rights. That's a battle that we must wage. We must have the courage to fight that battle. So that had an impact on me. Well, thank you both, ladies. It was wonderful to have you thank on. Thank you so much, Aisha. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And that's all we've got for today. You can check out Seeing All Red on Netflix streaming now. And Represent, as usual, is produced by the lovely Austin Berlin-Williams, while our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. Our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And look out for next week's episode when we celebrate Wakanda and kick off our first Black Panther-themed episode. Until next time. Thank you.